I've literally never met a student athlete who said they got through four years of college athletics, no matter the division, no matter the sport, and said it was a breeze. Everyone can relate to the struggle. Sometimes I feel like I'm in this community of things are getting better, we're advocating, we're talking about it, look how many members there are. Well, the fact that there are still stories mean that we still have a long way to go. Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. In this episode, I'm speaking with Victoria Garrick-Brown, TED Talk speaker, influencer, and mental health advocate. She shared her mental health journey and advocacy, why she prioritizes authenticity online, and what she's ambitious for in this chapter of her life. I'm grateful that she's supporting so many with her content and that she's blazing a path for young entrepreneurs. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Victoria, welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. It's great to have you on with us. Thank you so much. I'm definitely honored to be here and looking forward to our conversation. So let's give the audience a bit of a background on what it is that you do. I almost think you have a portfolio career of different things. You're a mental health advocate, you're a podcaster, an influencer. You're doing a lot of different things right now. How do you describe what your career looks like? It's so funny you say that because I have been grappling with this myself, especially when people ask me, my parents are like, you need to come up with your three sentence elevator pitch because it sounds like you don't even know what you're doing. But I do have so many irons in the fire. I think at a really high level, I am an entrepreneur and kind of try to take advantage of this new creator industry and the way you can be multifaceted and you can have a message and have a story and find different ways to package it and put it out there to help people. If someone asked me, I'd say I was a college athlete and I started sharing my story about my experiences playing at the division one level. First did that through a TED talk, expanded through a YouTube channel and Instagram account and everything kind of kept growing. And yes, I am now what you'd call the classic influencer. So many great things. Bring us back to that TED talk and what your original mission was around talking about mental health and being an athlete and how that original one effort alone really launched into so many different things, given the importance of the message. I think that all of us have different times in our life where we're feeling pulled to something. And as a volleyball player at USC, where I was playing, I was really struggling with my own mental health and just the intensity of the stressful environment that I was in competing at that level. In going through that performance anxiety and a depressive episode, I kind of realized that if I'm feeling so alone, there's probably other athletes who are feeling alone. And also no one seems to be talking about this. This is back in 2017. And I'm pretty outgoing. I'm pretty driven. And if I feel like there's something that's not being addressed, I don't hesitate to jump at that. It was a really vulnerable TED Talk, and it was diving into an area I'd never been in before. I remember my parents even telling me out of love, this will live on the internet forever. Are you sure you want to talk about this? Because it was really stigmatized back then. And I did because I just did not want someone else to suffer in silence the way that I did. So I gave that TED Talk purely to come up on Google search and comfort someone else It spiraled and it went viral in the athletic community. And then, of course, I start thinking I can continue talking about this. I could share more. I'm only a sophomore. And that's when my wheels started turning and I realized the opportunity that I had had. You'd think it would have clicked for me beforehand. I was giving a TED Talk, but I don't think in the present moment you can really foresee how the dominoes are falling. 
Well, so tell us about being a longtime athlete and when you started to feel that anxiety that really was overwhelming for you, were you prepared for that? Were you not prepared for that? What was it about that moment that really made you feel like you needed to get that message out? I definitely don't think I was prepared for it, but I don't think that that's anyone's fault necessarily. There's no way you can prepare to experience something before you're actually in it. I think that applies to anything in life. You can study, you can practice, you can put the time in. But once you get into that moment, there's going to be things that come up that you've never dealt with or experienced before, and you just don't know how to handle it yet. And I was 18 and I'd never been a division one athlete before. It's a big shift from high school to college. And I felt that. That's, I think, what kind of took the biggest toll on me. And I think there's people that adjust really well to it. I think there's people that struggle. There's people that never figure it out. And for me, it was really the most mentally challenging thing I'd ever been through before. That's what inevitably led me to wanting to speak out about it was because I felt like not only was I maybe not prepared for the intensity of the physical schedule, it's almost six days a week, five hours slot a day, but then that mental component. And I think I was hoping that my message could reach some of those young athletes or those athletes who were struggling and let them know that you're not alone if you're going through this and you're also not less than, you don't deserve to not be on your team, but this is a part of competitive sports at a high level, at all levels, really. But that pressure, as you said, at a different level for you, and you're still so young and you're balancing also being a college student at the same time, all these factors are hitting at once. You were talking about this before we had such high profile athletes like Naomi Osaka, Simone Biles talking about their own mental health. What was the reaction that you got immediately afterwards? And did you get any backlash from people who just thought, you know what, that's the pressure, those are the stakes and deal with it? It is kind of a blur. Overall, I remember it being really positive. I remember my teammates feeling like, yes, go girl, give the talk for all of us. That was really positive. And then online, it was well-received. And I started to realize it was reaching teams across the country and athletes of different sports. And I had coaches reach out. So overall, it was positive. You're right. A lot happened since then. That's kind of really put the spotlight on this conversation, which is amazing. But it is funny how so much has changed in what feels like a short amount of time because back then there was no Naomi Osaka article or Simone Biles story. And you were doing this before the pandemic. And the pandemic, I think, opened the door to a lot more mental health discussion and awareness. But I think you were doing it at a time where we didn't have such a jarring thing happen to us globally. So I'm wondering, how did you think about your advocacy, your approach to advocacy, and really trying to blend in empathy and being very deliberate in your approach? Did you think about the messaging and how you wanted to tell the story? And if so, what was that thought process like? It's interesting because on the one hand, it starts off incredibly organic. It's, I want to just give this talk to reach someone. And then I used the phrase, my wheels were turning because when you have something on YouTube and every single day, thousands of more people are watching it. And then they come to your Instagram and they come to your Facebook and they're sending you messages. Of course you think, okay, how can I give them more? And what do they want? And then that's kind of where, I don't like the word strategy because it sounds like it's maybe not authentic. As I was, receiving those messages and gaining some followers, I did start to think about, okay, how can I continue helping them or creating something that resonates with them? 
that's what led me to post more on Instagram and think more seriously about content and what am I putting out there. As far as being deliberate with the messaging, I think the one through line of everything I've done, even if my story changes or the things I talk about change, is I'm coming from a place of this is me and this is where I'm at and this is what I'm struggling with or what I'm figuring out. I never want to be someone who's standing on a stage preaching. I am young, but also I don't think I ever see myself holding the finger and saying, do this, do that. This is the answer and the key to life. As long as I can remain honest and talk about what I'm going through, that's going to be the thing that helps because that's the position other people are in as well. I love that. I think what you're saying is it's being true to yourself. It's not telling other people how to be or how to cope with certain things, but people will still derive a lot of meaning just in understanding your story it will definitely resonate with people. They will for sure pick things up. So now you're in the public eye a lot more. Did that come naturally to you? Were you prepared for that and that different level of scrutiny once you got the initial message out? I always felt like I would do something with my life that was in the public eye. Of course, when I was 10, I thought I would be a pop star. I definitely never envisioned a life for myself where I was behind a desk, in an office, off the grid. That was never something I thought of for myself. I majored in journalism. I thought I'd be a broadcast journalist, so I'd be on TV. I think it was natural for me to be in front of the camera and to host a podcast and things like that. But I definitely think that, especially with where my platform's at now, the scrutiny is next level. And I put a lot of pressure on myself. It is really hard. I don't want to be like, poor me, I have this job and this is hard because it is an amazing job and I'm so privileged and there's very few cons. But But every time I post something, I genuinely have to pause and ask myself, how would any human being of any background, of any job, of any XYZ thing that might see this in the world think of it? I have to put that hat on. Then as a result, I'm trying to make sure I'm appealing and I'm well-received and I'm sensitive and I'm catering towards every single human being that could see this that exists. And that's impossible. So I've started to have to understand and process that it's not going to hit for everyone. And there's going to be some people that they don't like me or they think my content's annoying and there's nothing I can do about that. And that's also, I think, a magnifying glass on what life is. Whether you're an influencer or not, there's going to be people at your office who you don't vibe with and there's going to be people in your school who aren't your best friends. And I think that's part of being human, right? Is wanting everyone to like you and realizing, but I don't even like everyone. So that's impossible. I think you're exactly right. Your message, I think as universally true as it is, may not land the same way for everybody, but it will land the right way or the common way or be welcomed by most people and certainly the people you want it to resonate with. Tell us at the core of your advocacy around mental health, what it is that you're trying to convey to people. What do you want them to know specifically? The most important thing for me for people to genuinely be able to validate themselves and know that it's okay to not be perfect and to have failed or to be struggling, to know that that doesn't make them less than or like they've lost in some way or that this is going to ruin their life. For them to know it's okay that I'm here and this makes me human. And then to follow that with, and you're worthy of voicing that to someone you love and you're worthy of receiving help or seeking out a resource that could change things for you. Those two things are really important to me. And it's funny how I'm so in the space that that seems very 
commonplace for most people in the mental health world is to validate their feelings and to seek help. But there are still so many people, whether it's friends, it's family, it's people I know who they just still can't give themselves that grace. And that's where I know there's still a lot of work to be done. I'm curious if you can compare and contrast what it felt like to be an athlete in a very public way, living up to expectations as an athlete versus now as an advocate, living up to expectations with your content and with your thought leadership. It's two very different things you were out there known for. Were the pressures the same, different? What did you learn from your athletic career that you take into your new career? The biggest thing that comes to mind is when you're an athlete, you have a coach and you have teammates and you do have to kind of think about the moves that you're making or the things that you're doing and how they're going to affect this unit as a whole. Whereas now I feel completely independent, so much so that it's lonely, that I am this kind of one woman show and I have a lot going on and I do feel like sometimes I'm on this island and I don't have that team and I don't have someone saying, you've done enough, sign off for the day or you have permission here. It's like, it's all on me. And that's really hard. I actually started crying yesterday on the phone with my husband because I'm realizing as I'm hitting some limits as an entrepreneur, like I'm 25. I don't have experience in a corporate setting in a startup setting. Like there's just things I don't know. And I am running a business and I feel like I'm at that place where maybe I do need to hire someone who knows more than me and has experience and can help me keep going from where I am now to the next place because I don't have the teammates to lean on or the coach guiding you. So I think that's maybe the biggest difference. It's really interesting to hear you say that. You're reminding me, we had the chance to speak with Abby Wambach, US soccer great star, and she has a book called Wolfpack. She describes what you're talking about, going with a team to do everything, winning with a team, training with a team, and having that team not be with you when you go into other life pursuits can really feel so different. Sounds like it's a very typical thing for people who've had the benefit of being an athlete on a team sport to really feel. So getting back to the subject of mental health, tell us about the challenges that you see people typically face when they confront mental health issues and also when they try to get help for it. One of the biggest things is just the lack of awareness that there's been a change in you. These things happen gradually. You don't wake up one day in the midst of your depression. You slowly drop down to that place. I guess if we're talking about depression or if we're talking about anxiety, for me, I had no idea I could even have anxiety. I was like, but I'm outgoing and I'm talkative and I have friends. And the way that I've seen someone who's anxious in the movies is they can't even have a conversation. So that can't be me. Then I tell myself, why am I worrying so much about this? Why can't I sleep at night? Why are my palms sweaty? And I'm not able to identify the change. And so I think that's a big issue is people don't recognize the shift in themselves. Maybe when they do, they then kind of gaslight themselves of, well, I don't deserve to feel this way. I have XYZ thing, or this person wouldn't understand, or this would make them think I'm unfit for my career or not trustworthy on the court. I think that's the lack of understanding of these complex mental health issues. Then there's the stigma of not worthy to seek help. This is embarrassing. So I think those are maybe two big hurdles people have to work through. I think that sounds so relatable for so many people, whether you consider yourself an anxious person or have bouts of anxiety here and there. I think we all can relate to that. Have there been approaches that have worked for you as you address anxiety, things that maybe you even use as an athlete in terms of coping mechanisms, but that you use now when you face things? 
therapy was hugely helpful for me. I went as a college athlete and I go now. I've been going to therapy on and off for probably like seven years now. I guess if I, yeah, if I started my sophomore year of college, talking to someone is so powerful. It's powerful to have an expert hear what you're going through and then kind of offer their advice and guidance. And they've actually studied how to regulate your emotions, how to handle triggers that arise better than your bestie who you love to call. And so therapy has been huge for me. And if anyone has access to that resource, I recommend that. Also, just talking to anyone, if you can open up and you can take that time for yourself to kind of process with someone that you trust. Journaling is huge for me. I think my thoughts can run really wild and it can be as simple as writing down two columns. What's not in my control? When I was an athlete, I'd write down what my coach says, what my teammates say, where I am in practice, how the other girl plays, all these things not in my control. Then on the right side, here's my list of what's in my control, my attitude, my energy, how I treat other people, how I handle the situations I'm put in, if I go for it. And then you can get your thoughts out of your head onto paper, look at them and be like, this column, no matter how badly I think about it, I can never impact it ever. So let me just rip it up, throw it away. And these are the things I can control. And then I would just say meditation. And when people hear meditation, maybe they think, I can't sit in silence and I can't stop thinking. That's not a thing for you. It can be as simple as 10 minutes without your phone in the morning, sitting with yourself. Maybe you're thinking a lot, listen to your thoughts, and then you'll recognize, oh my gosh, my thoughts always take me to work. My thoughts always take me to this situation. I'm gonna try to bring them back here. That 10 minutes to slow down your entire day and just be with yourself. I think that that's powerful and I do that in the mornings. So I'd love to talk about your nonprofit advocacy group called The Hidden Opponent. Tell us what that is and what your mission is. The Hidden Opponent is a nonprofit that I founded named after my TED Talk, The Hidden Opponent, because as I had been public speaking and visiting these various colleges and meeting students and athletes, so many of them said, I experienced the same thing. I have a story I want to share. I want to meet other athletes like you, like this. It was recognizing thousands of athletes who wanted to talk about mental health, wanted to make a difference, wanted to be advocates. And so the hidden opponent was this way to kind of cast this large umbrella and create this community that people could be a part of. And so we highlight student athletes and their stories. We give them a voice. We're always publishing and posting articles that the athletes have written about what they've been through. I remember feeling like, where do you talk about this? Where do you say it? How's it going to be received? And so we've created that safe space where athletes who do want to be vocal, they can be. We educate the members of our community. So we have, whether it's psychologists, psychiatrists, nutritionists, former Olympic athletes, professionals coming in and having webinars with our community members to help them with whatever it is. Remember, it's that transition from college to the real world, or it's navigating the new NIL rules. We're always advocating for our athletes, educating them, and then creating this community that can support them. They meet other athletes. They get to have leadership roles on their campuses. And it's been really magical seeing what the hidden opponent has become. It wouldn't be what it is without the amazing people we have behind it. My co-partner, Liam Passar, is the rock of THO, always making sure we are right with it. And it's been a dream come true, seeing kind of what it's evolved to. I had never imagined this. That's great. What has that community taught you in terms of some of the common challenges that face collegiate athletes? 
that constant reminder that every athlete, I'd say it's the minority. It's the outliers that are like, "Mm, got through it with a breeze. I've literally never, ever met a student athlete who said they got through four years of college athletics, no matter the division, no matter the sport, and said it was a breeze. Everyone can relate to the struggle. And also, I think just the fact that even if Sometimes I feel like I'm in this community of things are getting better. We're advocating. We're talking about it. Look how many members there are. Well, the fact that there are still stories mean that we still have a long way to go because I think in a perfect world, we would love for the athletes to say that it's been breezy or it was a joy. I think it's also a reminder that there's still so much work to do because there are still so many athletes who are struggling. Do you think it's harder for women student athletes than it is for men or do they face similar challenges and struggles? I would not necessarily say that. And I also wouldn't say that it's harder for men. I think it's something you can't compare because I think all the struggles are uniquely different. I mean, women are experiencing their own struggles that men don't just with being women and Title IX and all of that. And then I think men are experiencing an added stigma about mental health because of the toxic masculinity and the guys don't cry and guys don't feel. I think the struggles are different. And I don't think I can make a blanket statement that one's worse than the other. So I'm listening to our conversation, Victoria, and I'm thinking about the fact that we tell so many girls and young women that being in athletics can be really important for your career down the road. We look at many women in corporate America and many of them have been athletes and they will generally credit the time that they were athletes as a time that they really learned how to play the game, stay in the game, fail, get up from failing. There were so many good life lessons from playing sports, but obviously there's a cost to that as you're describing here. There's pressure, real pressure on it. So where do you come out on this? Do you still encourage girls to go into sports, to stay in those sports? And if they do, do you tell them to look out for certain things or to make sure they have certain supports along the way? I definitely encourage girls to play sports. I think sports gave so much to my life and I cannot even imagine my life having not grown up playing sports. So yes, yes, yes. I think sports are amazing. And I think kids learn a lot from it. They learn teamness, they learn accountability, they learn challenge. So much of who I am, I think is really a result of being an athlete. The biggest thing is that it is going to get challenging the farther you go up in the ranks and the levels of playing your sport. But just knowing that when it does get challenging, because it will, that's okay. And it's been challenging for a lot of people. It's challenging for the best athletes in the world. And this doesn't make you less than or not good enough or like you've done something wrong. And so I think that's the key component is just that warning of, hey, this is great. It's going to continue to get challenging. And if it ever gets to a point where you can't handle it on your own, please don't hesitate to seek that help or to tell someone about it. Would love to hear about your hashtag real post campaign. Tell us what you're trying to drive with that. That same year I gave my TED talk, I started to think, well, you know, I did that. So F it. Let me just kind of put it all out there. And I took to my Instagram and was sort of sick of posting this perfect life and looking like I had all these friends at USC and everything was perfect. And I was Photoshopping my body and my face to look a certain way. And I just, after a while, realized it was super toxic. It wasn't good for me. And I wanted to just be real. And I remember having this kind of come to Jesus moment with my brother, actually, 
we were on a vacation with my family by the beach and I spent like all day taking these bikini photos because that's what you do in college. You try to get these photos so the guys like you and the girls think you're pretty and you stay relevant. Instead of enjoying the vacation, I brought two different changes of bikini and made my mom take a photo of me and I did all this stuff and then I'm going to post my photo and my older brother is like, why are you doing that? And I was like, what? What are you talking about? I think he's kidding. And he's like, no, seriously, why do you want to post that? And I realized he wanted to actually have a conversation. So I said, because it's a good photo. It's going to get a lot of likes and comments. He said, why do you need a lot of likes and comments? And I said, because it makes me feel good. And he just said, okay. And then I posted the photo, but I didn't feel the same saw the likes come and the comments come and I felt funky. I felt weird. It was like, of course I was doing that for validation, but I didn't really realize that until someone kind of made me realize it. And then I thought, why would I do that? I'm super confident. I love who I am. I don't need other people to make me feel good. And then I kind of realized, oh my gosh, this is the addiction I'm in on social media. So then the next day I posted a no filter picture of my Yaya, I'm Greek, so my grandma, and I just captioned it hashtag real post. And from that day forward, I just really leaned into this post what I want, when I want, don't care how it's perceived by other people. And it started as a joke for just me. And it's now grown into this thing. Even today, someone posted this long Instagram about what she's struggling with and what she's going through and said hashtag real post and tagged me. And so it's become this cool movement where people are just telling it like it is online. That is so important. I think so many young people, first of all, are addicted to being on social, but to your point, doing things for those likes and that constant attention and validation where it just doesn't seem to be healthy. It sounds like you broke that early. You were challenged by your brother, who is obviously important to you and really made you think about that. Have you really changed that going forward from now on? Definitely. I don't use any filters on any of my accounts. And I make that promise to the people who follow me that they know this is like one small corner of the internet where you're never going to see anything that's fake. I don't even swipe right to the Paris filter, which anyone who uses Instagram, that's just the auto. You swipe right on everything. I definitely kind of stayed true to that. And it's a big part of my message and what I believe in as well. 80% of girls before the age of 13 will distort the way they look online. That's just so devastating. And I can't even imagine being 13 and feeling like you need to look like a filter. And that's impossible. We talk to a lot of women on this podcast about the notion of ambition. And so I'd love to ask you, do you consider yourself ambitious? And has that ambition changed at all from the time you were an athlete to now as an entrepreneur? Yes, I definitely consider myself ambitious, consider myself a go-getter, feel like I was always the person who was making the connection, raising the hand in class, going after to get the email, seeking out the opportunity. However, I've been realizing recently in my life, and I had actually, I don't know if you're familiar with Gabby Bernstein, but I had her on my podcast and we were kind of talking about this because I do think that that ambition has become a default state of who I am and the default state being constantly better, constantly improve, constantly do more. And of course, it serves you well when you can become successful and you can build something and that's great. However, it doesn't allow you to ever turn off, reap the benefits or take a break or pause. And it's funny because my whole message started as it's okay not to be okay, take a break. And then I was like, okay, 
how can I be the best person out there to encourage people to take the break and be okay with not being okay? And then recently I realized, oh my gosh, it disguised itself again. And I did exactly the same thing and burnt myself out and became unhappy. I'm currently in a period where I'm trying to slow down. When people ask me what I want to do this year, I joke that I want to do nothing. Of course, I'm working and I'm doing things, but I'm trying to create balance in my life and understand what that means and that it doesn't have to be constantly going and constantly seeking growth. And as you think about staying ambitious, even as one might be facing a mental health challenge, what would your advice to listeners be? The cool thing is to shift it, to be relentless in the pursuit of helping yourself. You can want to pursue the starting spot on your volleyball team or this job or this raise or this relationship or whatever it is. But then if you're struggling, can you change and channel that energy to be towards helping yourself, doing everything in your power to put yourself in the position to get better, to seek support, to experience change? And that's definitely how I viewed it for me. Thank you so much, Victoria. I think that's a really lovely thought to end on. It is so nice to speak with you and really appreciate everything you're doing out there to address mental health, really give it the importance it deserves and reach an audience on this important topic. Thank you. Thanks so much, Sam. Such incredible questions. I had a lovely time and it was an honor to be on your podcast. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Victoria. It was great to hear how valuable that athletic experience was to her own life. I loved her comment that we all relentlessly pursue our own well-being, and I look forward to watching her shape the conversation on mental health. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. To learn more about Women on the Move and listen to the full library of this podcast, please visit jpmorganchase.com slash W-O-T-M. For JPMorgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.